Before there were digital cameras on your phone or digital cameras on your smart device, there was film photography as the way that pictures were taken. That was, that was the primary way, really the only way that pictures could be taken through film photography. And when you push that button on your camera to take a picture, what would happen is that the, the shutters would open and, and light would come through a little hole in the camera called an aperture. And that light, when it came through that little hole, that aperture, it would strike sensitive film. And then the result was that you would have an impression of an image called a negative. And then what you would do is you would, you would take that negative to someone who could develop it, and then they would produce a positive picture, which was your end result picture. Everyone knew at this time, photographers knew that it was impossible for you to get the picture without the negative. There was no way for you to actually get the picture without first getting the negative. That camera had to be opened up and exposed to the light. And that light had to strike something sensitive, that film, to create a negative that would ultimately re result in a positive picture. The negatives were simply a process in which the, the picture was created. It was a part of the process. You couldn't get a picture without the negatives. And if we're honest, we can acknowledge that the times where we most struggle in our faith, the times where we most struggle to believe, is during the times of suffering and hardship. When trials come into our life, when we are confronted with situations, losses, frustrations, when our plans are disrupted, it often leaves us confused, it leaves us bewildered, it leaves us disappointed, and it, it can often leave us doubting God, doubting his promises, doubting that he is real and true. And a lot of this is because we have reduced the Christian faith to a tool that we use in order to get the American dream. We have a very weak view, a very shallow and small understanding of the Christian faith. And that's often revealed through our trials and through our suffering. But what we come to see in this text is that God wants to reshape your interpretation of the trials that are in your life. God wants to rework your understanding of the difficulties that you face on a regular basis. There is no such thing as an uninterpreted fact. There's no such thing as brute fact. They're all interpreted facts when we're looking at the way that things unfold in our lives. And the interpretive lens that you put on those things that happen in your life will determine the results of your life. And what we see in this text is we, we come to see that God is working out his purposes in our trials and difficulties. Not despite our trials and difficulties, but through our trials and difficulties. Through our adverse circumstances. We learn through scripture that God purposely opens the shutters of our lives and he allows suffering and difficult circumstances to come in and strike us where we're sensitive. And it leaves a negative impression upon us at times. 
But God's purpose in bringing the negatives into our lives is for the sake of producing positive pictures of what he is like. Positive pictures of his power and his grace and his love. God always brings suffering in a redemptive way. Nothing happens to you on accident. You can look all through scripture and see this. I think it's amazing. You think back in the story of of one of those famous sufferers, that man named Job. And he said this thing. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. He doesn't say the Lord giveth and the devil taketh away. He acknowledges that the good and the difficult and the, the hard and the trying, it comes from God. But our interpretive lens needs to be turned to understand that God is at work and the adverse circumstances of our lives. And what he wants to do with us is he wants to create a positive picture for other people to see. It's one thing for someone to tell you that God is faithful in your suffering. But it's another thing to see someone who is undergoing deep suffering and pain and bodily affliction and to hear that person say, God is faithful to the afflicted. God is faithful in the pain. It's a different thing. God wants to bring gravitas to our words through our lives. God wants to show us that he advances his message through our messes. And that's the main point that I want to stick today. God advances his message through our messes. That's how God has always done it. God has always advanced his message through the messiness of our lives, the messiness of our circumstances, the things that we, that we bring on ourselves through our own sin and foolishness, but also the things that are out of our control that come into our lives. He advances his message. He means to advance his message through our messes. And so we're going we're gonna to get into this text and we're going to walk through it. And we begin in verse 12. Now, verse 12 is the formal introduction to Paul's letter. This is the formal opening of the body of his letter. And we need to remember something in order to appreciate his words here. We need to remember that Paul is in prison right now. He is writing this letter from prison. And not only this, but his life up to this point has been marked by very difficult things. It's been marked by various trials. His, his material life did not magically get better when he became a Christian. That is a false version of Christianity. Who wouldn't want Christianity if it promised to make everything nice and neat and clean and prosperous in our material lives? Who wouldn't want that? But that's simply not biblical Christianity. Paul's life did not get magically better on a material level when he became a Christian. No, in fact, it got so much more difficult. It became more challenging because he exchanged burdens. He, he exchanged burdens. He gave away the burden of being successful. He gave away the burden of outperforming his peers. He gave away the burden of his, 
guilt and his shame that was due to his sin. He gave away that burden that weighed him down because Jesus took it up. He gave away that burden through faith in Christ. But then he received another burden. He received a different kind of burden. He now received a burden to know Christ. He now had a burden to love God and to love people. He now had a burden to see other people who were weighed down under their guilt and their shame, who were blinded by their self-righteousness and their pride. He had a burden to see them set free. He had a burden to see them come to know God's love in a transformative way. He had a burden to see local church communities formed, growing together in love for the benefit of their neighbors. He had a new burden. And this burden brought him into untold difficulties. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 sometime, Paul runs down through the list of his afflictions and his difficulties when he became a Christian. He tells us that he was whipped on multiple occasions for preaching this message that Jesus saves sinners and Jesus alone can save sinners. He was beaten with rods multiple times for preaching this message that Jesus saves sinners and Jesus alone can save sinners. He was stoned and left for dead for preaching this message that Jesus saves sinners and Jesus alone can save sinners. And the reason why he was willing to endure these things, the only rational explanation for the development of the Christian church and, and the transformation of the Apostle Paul is that what happened to him on that Damascus road actually took place. That he actually was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. That he actually saw Jesus risen from the dead. He was a vehement opponent of the Christian faith. He was the first to say that Christians were fools, that they were crazy, that what they believed was a fairy tale. And he has this immediate, radical transformation because he actually lays eyes on Jesus risen from the dead. And that is the explanation for why he was willing to endure these things. I don't care how devoted you are to anything. If you're whipped enough times, if you're beaten enough times, if you're stoned and left for dead, if you are imprisoned on multiple occasions, at some point, if what you are claiming to say is true is not really true, you're, why in the world would you be willing to give your life for something that was clearly false? There's no explanation. He was not inching toward Christianity at the time. He was not getting closer and closer to believing that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He was running farther and farther away and actually systematically pursuing the execution of Christians. You gotta be really intense to wanna see your enemies dead for their belief. And that's exactly where he was. But Jesus met him on that road and because he knew the veracity, the reality of the Christian faith, this is what he was willing to endure. 
He was, of course, gripped by this vision, and he could not imagine a life in which he remained silent about it. And so he preached, and as a result, he faced conflict and afflictions and troubles. It brought difficulty into his life. And his friends in Philippi are concerned about him. We've had friends who are suffering and are going through things, and you think about them, they come to mind, and you check in on them. The Philippians were concerned about Paul and his circumstances. They knew the trail of tears that lay behind him. They knew that he was in prison, and they were concerned about him. But I want you to look at this text and see how Paul reorients their thinking regarding his circumstances. Look look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, I want you to look at my circumstances differently. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, all of this drama, all of this trial, all of these adverse circumstances, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul's greatest concern was not, what is God doing for me at this time? It was, what is my life doing for the sake of the gospel? It's a radically different way of looking at things. Paul was not concerned about what God was doing for him right now. He didn't view God as some heavenly vending machine. He didn't view God as as the one who's basically sitting up there in order to answer my every whim and to do all of the things that I have in my plan for my life. This is not his view of God. He has no entitlement regarding his present circumstances because he knew that God had done something to transform his eternal circumstances. He was thinking about a bigger truth that would contextualize the other truths in his life. Yes, it was true he was suffering. Yes, it was true he was enduring hardship. Yes, it was true that his his circumstances were adverse. But these smaller truths were submitted to the greater truth of who God is and what God has done and what God is doing in the world. There was a magisterial truth and and ministerial truths. Smaller truths. There was truth with a capital T and there were truths with lowercase t. All of the little things that were going on in his life. This is how he viewed things. This is how he's inviting his friends to look at their lives. He's not saddled with an attitude of entitlement about his present situation because God had done something to affect his eternal situation. He could thrive in a Roman prison because he had been freed from a far darker prison, his sin. He was not beholden to human opinions about what he was doing in his preaching because he had the acceptance of the only person who really and truly mattered, God. He could love his enemies because he was the enemy who was loved. He could could await judgment from a Roman king without fear because he knew that he stood free of judgment from the king of kings. Paul had this kind of clarity on his life and his trials because he had this kind of clarity on the gospel and God's purposes in the world. And he was... He was confident that the Lord was advancing the message through his messes. He was confident of this. How, but how could, he, how could he take such a position, you have to ask? How does he arrive at this place? Because Paul was clear on the fact that when the Son of God came into the world, 
God opened the shutter of his life. And he sent through the aperture of his life suffering and pain and difficulty untold. He, he was even known as the man of sorrows and one acquainted with grief, Jesus was. Someone who was intimately aware of the difficult life of being oppressed and being, being pushed down and being broken. God sent difficulties to strike his life. And he was, he was brought into all of the negatives. And here's the thing. The negatives were not accidental to the work of Christ. They were central to the work of Christ. The negatives were not accidental to his life. The negatives were central to his life. They were central to the fulfillment of his calling to rescue the world. God brought negatives into the life of his son, Jesus Christ, and he advanced the message through the messes. He brought the negative of loneliness and abandonment into the life of his son. He brought the negative of rejection and suffering into the life of his son. He brought the negative of mockery and crucifixion but it was through these negatives that God developed the positive picture of his love. It was through these negatives that God developed the positive picture of his grace and his forgiveness and his patience with those who rebel against him and his kindness toward those who are constantly diminishing him in their hearts and in their actions. It was through the negative of his son's death that he brought the powerful picture of resurrection life. This is, this is the good news. It was through the negative of the son's alienation that you and I receive reconciliation. It was through the negative of the son's judgment that God brought the positive picture of justification and acquittal to us. This is the good news. God advanced the message through his messes. And if he did this in the life of his son, Jesus, and we are being made into his likeness, then you can expect that this is how he's working in our lives as well. God had one child without sin, but he's never had a child without suffering. We are not exempt from it. But the promise, the hope, is that not only will we advance God's message of love and renewal, but we will come to know God more deeply as a result of the sufferings. Paul, when he talks about people coming to know that his imprisonment was for Christ, it's not just that his, his affliction was for the sake of Christ, it was in solidarity with Christ. It was in this way that he came to know Jesus. It was in this way that he came to know what, what suffering and redemptive love was like, the love that was lavished on him. It was in this way that he came into a deeper intimacy with God. He knew that. Paul's firm grip on this central truth properly contextualized every other truth in his life. So he was able to maintain perspective on his calling, on his purpose, 
in life. And that purpose was to advance the gospel. To bring God's kingdom to bear in the world. A kingdom where injustice is put down. A kingdom where the vulnerable are protected. A kingdom where the weak are invited in. A kingdom where it's not about your credentials and it's not about how smart you are and it's not about how many letters you have behind your name and it's not about how many zeros you have in your bank account. It's about what Christ has done to bring us all together into a family of love. That's, that's what he had command of in his, in his soul. But the question is, what does he mean by the advancement of the gospel? I think this text shows us exactly what he means. And I think it's, it's got two primary branches. What Paul means by the advancement of the gospel is that non-Christians are given the message. We can't change anybody. That's not, the ball's not in our court when it comes to change. We can't change people. But we are responsible for announcing the hope that we have. We are responsible for engaging on the hope of his grace in Jesus Christ. Non-Christians are given the message. We see that in verse 13. He says his circumstances resulted in the message of the gospel going through the entire imperial guard. We're going to get to that in a second. But the second branch of what it means to advance the gospel is that Christians grow more confident in the Lord with the result that they are bold with the gospel message. That's verse 14. And most of the brothers and sisters became more confident in the Lord and they preached him, they announced him, they shared him with the people around him, with with the people around them with greater boldness. These are the two aspects of advancing the gospel. Let's look at the first one. Non-Christians were given the message through his imprisonment. He says, so that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 13. Now imagine this man, Paul. He's sitting in prison. He had every opportunity to say, poor me. Why, why would God do this to me? Well, I mean, I've been, I've, been, I've been so committed. I've been doing good stuff. Why is God doing this to me? But he doesn't do that. This is how he processes it. Again, think about the lens that gives him this insight. He's sitting in there, and every day, he's chained to a Roman soldier. And it's not the same Roman soldier every time. They rotate shifts. And so he's chained to a Roman soldier, and they're sitting there, and he begins to engage this Roman soldier on what is true. And what life is all about. And he begins to announce something crazy. You know why I'm here, right? Because I saw something that I never in a million years would have expected to see. That the, the, the person and the faith that I meant to oppose surprisingly turned out to be true. I saw a man risen from the dead. And he began to engage them with that. And the Roman soldiers are like, this dude is crazy. But after repeated hearings, and after Paul makes his case with them, they leave, and they go out, and they go back to the, to the water cooler, and they say, have you been chained to that joker Paul yet? Have you, have you been, he's, been, he's been talking to you about this Jesus Christ person? Man, isn't that, what do you think about that? That's crazy, man. The message starts to spread. New soldier comes in, chained to Paul. He says, do you know why I'm here? 
Have you heard why I'm here? He engages soldier after soldier after soldier after soldier. Listen, it is specifically through his affliction that he gets an audience with the very people he never would have had an audience with. No one in Rome would have ever known about him. No one in Rome would have ever cared about him. No one would have given a second thought to some Jewish rabbi who was going around with the message that the Messiah had come. No one in Rome would have. You see a picture of how incredulous they would have been when Jesus is with Pontius Pilate in his trial and, he's, and Jesus confronts him and he says, ah, what is truth? What is truth? A very Roman, Greco-Roman notion because of their philosophical backgrounding. But Paul has an opportunity and he believes that it's not just the power of his words that is doing work in people's lives and, and causing the message to spread. He believes that God is backing his words. That God is the power that changed people's lives. And it's through the message of the gospel that God operates powerfully in people's lives. This is, this is a powerful thing that we see in the life of Paul, but I want you to consider something. You may or, not, you may or may not be familiar with a, a guy named... Um, named Penn Jillette. He's, uh, he's one of the duo of magicians. Um, they're, a, they're a magic team. They, they do magic. And Penn Jillette is an atheist. And Penn Jillette tells the story of one time how he's, um, how he's doing a magic show. And, I, and he, he brings someone up from the crowd. And after the, after the man is brought up uh, from the crowd, he does a magic trick with them and everything. It's cool. And the show's over. And the man comes up to him, and he gives him a small uh, pocket New Testament with the Psalms in it. And he says, listen, I'm not crazy. I'm a businessman, uh, but I wanted you to have this. And this is, this is what Penn Jillette says. This is the commentary of an atheist man who's thinking very rationally and, and very consistently on this point. This is, this is what Penn Jillette says. He says... He was kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And then he says, I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize, who don't share their message. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. Listen to what this man says. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize them, to not share the gospel with them? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and to not tell them that? This is an atheist man thinking logically and consistently about the matter. And then he goes on and says this. He offers this example to illustrate his point. He says this, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you. And this is more important than that. This is the thoughtful, critical commentary of an, an atheist man who recognizes the inconsistency of claiming to believe a message about the truth of the way the world is, about the truth of God, about the way we've offended him and the only hope for removing the guilt of our sin, 
We claim to believe this message, but what he's saying is that it's inconsistent to sit on it. It's inconsistent to bury it because you are selfish, because you are self-referential. What are they going to think about me? What's going to happen to my reputation? Won't I look silly? Won't I be mocked? It's self-referential to hold this message in, to claim to believe these things that we announce every Sunday and to hold them to yourselves. This, this is what he's saying. It is one of the most unloving things. How could you allow the fear of man and what man might say or do to you, what they might think about you, to lead you to such selfish and hateful behavior? This is an atheist thinking clearly about what's at stake, and I deeply appreciate the way he puts this together. Pendulet is still an atheist, but it doesn't change the fact that what he says is true and helpful and challenging. <laughs> you hear what he's saying? This is an atheist man saying, y'all Christians need to be Christians. You Christians need to be faithful to your faith. And I'm gonna tell you something, all truth is God's truth. And we need to receive the rebuke, whether it comes from a preacher or from someone who doesn't make any claims to believing in religion. This is a powerful challenge to us. And what does this mean for us? It means we need to repent. That means we need to turn from our selfishness. We need, we need to ask God's forgiveness for our smallness of heart, for our failure of love toward our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our family members. We need to repent for our fearful hearts that cause us to live such small lives when it comes to our faith. We, we have an opportunity to change right now, this day. That doesn't mean that you become obnoxious. It doesn't mean that you become a blowhard. It means that through the way you engage people, they sense a genuine concern for who they are as people. That they, they hear an authenticity. And that they, they see that you are trying to be consistent with the outlook on life that you claim to believe. And you engage them thoughtfully, respectfully. Listen to their questions, respect their process. And hold out the hope of the gospel. This is what that means. But it also means that Christians grow deeper. Christians grow more confident with the result that they share. Verse 14, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The gospel advances when Christians grow more confident in the Lord with the result that they share the message of the gospel without fear. That we grow more confident that what we claim to believe is true. And if it is true, then it settles us. It emboldens us. This light and momentary affliction, Paul says, cannot compare with the weight of glory that is to come. We believe that God is going to renew this world. We believe that God is going to make all things new. We believe that God is going to make all wrongs right. We believe that justice will reign in the earth. We believe that. So this light and momentary affliction we can endure. We can endure. And I'm going to close with this. Here's the fact. 
everybody's an evangelist. Everybody. It's not just, a, it's not just Christians who are sharing their message. Everybody's sharing their message. That's just the way it is. Everybody has exclusive truth claims. To say there are no exclusive truth claims is itself an exclusive truth claim. Everyone is there. We just got to be honest about it. And that's okay. That's, it can only be this way. Everyone shares their message. Everyone shares their outlook on the way they think life should be. On the way they think you ought to live your life. On the values they think you ought to hold. What do you call what's happening in media anything but preaching? It may not be as sanctimonious as we can be in the church. Sometimes it is. This is what we ought to care about. These are the things that we ought to fight for. Freedom. Tolerance. You name it. Everyone's preaching a message. We simply need to be consistent and faithful to ours. That's, that's what I'm saying. That's what Paul's saying. And expect God to work in the midst of it. He can develop the negatives of our lives. And expect that that's one of the ways that he will help you to grow in sharing his love and his faithfulness. Don't, don't allow the disappointing circumstances in your life to cause you to despair. Begin to think through the question, how might these opportunities deepen me in my confidence in God and lead me to have a message to share in the midst of the mess? The message of God's faithfulness the message of God's kindness and hope and protection and, and preservation. The message of God's peace in the midst of storms. Because God is going to deepen and add weight and solidity and gravitas to your message through your messes. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these friends gathered here. We are grateful that your word is a word of grace. And we are grateful that you're patient with us. And we ask that you help us to process these things and allow ourselves to be challenged uh, to new ways of living, to, to new ways and patterns of life. We ask that you forgive us for the ways that we have been unloving toward our neighbors in all kinds of ways, but particularly with our silence regarding your love and your forgiveness and your hope and your renewal. We pray that you would embolden us, Lord, through your love and through your grace, we pray that you would help us to think about maybe even one person that we're not living in an authentic relationship with because we're holding back what we claim to be a big part of our lives. We're just wearing the mask with them. Help us to live in real relationships with people no matter what commitments they have or what, what worldview they espouse. We pray that you'd help us to be your people in the world. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.